Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of Love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, in the 13th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we find one of the most compelling and beautiful texts in the Bible. I'm talking about that hymn to love. You hear it at many Catholic weddings, don't you? Love, Paul tells us, is the greatest and most enduring of the theological virtues. Those three things that last. Surpassing in importance both hope and faith. Listen to Paul. If you have faith strong enough to move mountains, but have not love, you are nothing. Now, to realize the significance of that particular ranking, all you've got to do is consult Paul's letter to the Romans, where he lays out as unambiguously as possible the importance of faith. But here, compared to love, faith is nothing. More to it, love outstrips any of the impressive manifestations of the Spirit which appear to the Pauline communities. Listen. If I speak with the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Imagine people speaking in tongues. How extraordinary, how impressive, how spiritually rich that must have seemed. Okay, it was, says Paul. But compared to love, it means nothing. Finally, love is greater than even the most heroic moral act. Listen, if I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Can we imagine someone who is morally heroic? They do these amazing things. They give all their possessions away. But they're doing it out of the spirit of selfishness. They even hand over their body to be burned but not out of love. It means nothing. They gain nothing. You see, Paul is intuiting here something that's remained central to the Christian tradition for 2,000 years. Namely, that since love is the divine life, to live in love is to participate in God. Everything else is a footnote in the spiritual life. That's the whole story. Faith opens the door to God. That's true. Hope orders us to God as to our final end. Good. But love is what God is. And this is precisely why Paul tells us that faith and hope will fade away in heaven, whereas love will not. See, if we're immersed in the divine being, we're in heaven. We won't need faith, for we'll see clearly. We won't need hope, for we'll have all the good that we want. But we will need love, 
For love is precisely what it means to be immersed in God's life. Love is heaven. Okay, what precisely is love? Now, I know I've told you this before, but there's really nothing more important, so I'm going to say it again. We have a tendency, especially in our rather romantic culture, to identify love with a feeling or a sentiment. But authentic love, in the biblical sense, is only marginally related to the emotions. To love is to will the good of the other as other. Love is really to want what is advantageous to another person and to act concretely on that desire. Let me say it again. To love is really to want what is advantageous to another person and to act concretely on that desire. This is to be distinguished, by the way, from all forms of indirect egotism. Doing something good for another in order that the person might return the favor. Love involves, real love now, involves an ecstatic leap outside the narrow confines of one's own preoccupations and needs. Which explains why real love is such a rare phenomenon. It also explains why enemy love is the fullest test of love. When you desire the good of someone who's not the least bit likely to pay you back, then you know that your desire is pure, that it's unadulterated by egotism. You know that by loving enemies. Now, with this clarification in mind, we can appreciate more deeply this very nuanced analysis that Paul gives us in the second part of this hymn to love. Paul says first this, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient and kind. Friends, when you want the good of the other and not your own good, you're willing to wait. A sure sign that one is being merely superficially benevolent is a lack of patience in the face of the other's recalcitrance. Do you find yourself saying this? I've done so much for him, and he doesn't even acknowledge my presence. That's what an imperfect lover might say. True lovers wait, continuing to forgive even when no reciprocal forgiveness is forthcoming, continuing to be kind even when no answering kindness ensues. Real love is patient because it doesn't calculate or measure or weigh according to the demands of strict justice. Rather, in the manner of a parent who loves her child in season and out, it watches the other in hope. So it's patient, it's kind. Next, Paul tells us, love is not envious. Friends, when you really desire the good of the other, you don't resent that person's success or joy. I think I've told you before about the American novelist Gore Vidal, who beautifully summed up the attitude of jealousy in this admission, quote, When a friend of mine succeeds, something in me dies. Gore Vidal made his observation even more pointed, commenting that he burned with jealousy at the success of Tennessee Williams, who was his good friend. 
Precisely because Williams was so close to him personally, he found his success that much more galling. You know, when I first came across that quotation, I have to confess I experienced unpleasantly enough a kind of shock of recognition. I think a lot of people do. How often, I mused, have I remained indifferent to the triumphs of strangers while silently but deeply resenting the achievements of friends? There seems to be a perverse proportionality at work in the dynamics of jealousy. The more closely related the person, the deeper the envy that he or she awakens. But Paul's telling us authentic love wants the good of the other and therefore delights in the joys and attainments of others. The practitioner of love realizes the truth taught consistently throughout the Bible. That the being of the lover increases precisely through the good of the beloved, since both are at the depth of their being one. Next we hear as the hymn unfolds, love does not put on airs. It's not snobbish. Our economic, political, and social lives are, sad to say, predicated to a large degree on the very opposite impulse, aren't they? From the time we're children, we instinctively seek higher positions, more impressive titles. We spend much of our lives desperately jockeying for every advantage, impressing whom we can, destroying whom we must. For we realize that if we don't act aggressively, we will be supplanted. In this terrible zero-sum game, if you are noticed and celebrated, I'm forgotten. If you are advanced, I'm forced to retreat. Though most of the players in this tournament are far too deaf to let it show publicly, they're engaged continually in a cutthroat competition, destroying their opponents even as they smile at them over cocktails. But see, real love wants the good of the other. It wants the other to succeed and to be noticed. Therefore it is, as Paul says, self-effacing, self-forgetting, willing to let the other shine and bear the privileged title, willing in the manner of John the Baptist to decrease while someone else increases. How about this as the hymn goes on? Love does not rejoice in what is wrong, but rejoices with the truth. If we turn Gore Vidal's observation around, we come up with what the Germans call schadenfreude. That is, taking pleasure in another's misfortune. Obviously, this tendency to rejoice in the pain of the other is the precise opposite of love. But how gleefully most of us sinners indulge in it. So thrilled are we at the failure or embarrassment of someone else that we often become evangelists of it, announcing it to anyone willing to listen. If we do a serious examination of conscience, most of us would discover that much of our day is spent in this spiritually debilitating exercise. But real love, Paul is telling us, finds no joy in someone else's pain and is loath to serve it up through gossip to an eager audience. Rather, love finds joy in the truth of things, and the truth is that we are all connected by the deepest metaphysical bonds. Therefore, mocking another, 
or intensifying his pain by reveling in it is repugnant to real love. Finally, we hear love is not prone to anger, nor does it brood over injuries. Oh, how much time we spend, Christians, brooding over injuries, sitting in our own anger, remembering what people have done to us over the years. I've known people that hold grudges for decades. If you ask them what's behind it, they often don't even remember. In Dante's Divine Comedy, you've got that wonderful image of the angry on Mount Purgatory. They're forced to, to breathe in thick, dark smoke. It symbolizes what anger does to us. It chokes us. It blinds us. Our speech becomes sputtering and ineffectual. Our vision is obscured. Anger is in the way. Licking our wounds, reminding ourselves how deeply we've been hurt, nursing decades-old grudges, we shrink into a very small space, and our communication with others becomes at best garbled and distorted. Ah, but to will the good of the other as other, to love is to break out of that prison. When we love, we let go of our brooding self-regard and our finally self-destructive patterns of resentment. Paul concludes the great hymn by reminding us that knowledge fails, speaking in tongues will cease, prophecies will die away, but that love never dies. We will take none of our earthly titles, degrees, or religious achievements with us to heaven, but we will indeed carry there the quality of our love. And therefore, friends, order your life according to this great and abiding act. And God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that, together, we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708-449-6100. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.